Hello and welcome to Design Emergency. I'm Alice Rawsthorne, co-founder of Design Emergency with Paolo Antonelli, and we're delighted that in this episode of our podcast, we'll meet the designer, activist and academic Julia Watson, whose years of research into sacred landscapes and nature-based technologies designed by Indigenous communities in remote parts of our planet promise to produce ingenious solutions to the devastating damage caused by the climate emergency. Raised in Australia, Julia studied architecture there and then landscape architecture at Harvard, always focusing on design projects inspired by the Indigenous environment. Now based in the US, Julia spent 20 years researching sacred landscapes and the diverse ways in which isolated communities all over the world have deployed design improvisationally by drawing on ancient wisdom and readily available natural materials to develop ways of living safely and sustainably. Among them are the 6,000-year-old floating islands where the Madan community lives in the southern wetlands of Iraq, and the living root bridges that defend the Khazi people of northern India against horrific floods in one of the wettest and most isolated parts of the world. Julia shared her research in one of the most important, and my own favourite, design books of recent years, Low-Tech, Designed by Radical Indigenism. She's now focused on designing systems and protocols to enable nature-based technologies to be deployed on a larger scale in other places, while ensuring that the communities who conceived them will be fairly paid for sharing them. So Julia, welcome to Design Emergency. Thank you, Alice. It's so great to be here. Oh, well, it's fabulous to have you. So, first of all, how did you discover sacred landscapes and why did you decide to focus your early research on them? So I actually sort of started my career in a very typical way, studying architecture in Brisbane, Australia. And what was really incredible about the education that I got in Australia was that in this particular architecture school, there was something called an Aboriginal design research unit. And they were exploring indigenous ways of occupation of the landscape, indigenous infrastructures, indigenous architecture. And every single second year design student had to take a compulsory seminar where they were being taught about indigenous architecture and indigenous ways of occupying space. And I think for me, coming from an inner city urban environment, growing up in Australia, which was very predominantly white, having a very specific education that I think, you know, wasn't really about understanding the plethora of of cultures that had occupied the land prior to colonization. Having that type of education was just a really incredibly pivotal moment for me and and almost was like, you know, a veil was lifted of my understanding of the country and the space and the land, which I occupied and had occupied my whole entire life. And from sort of that moment, I became really interested in landscape and and the concepts of occupation of landscape and, and cultural landscapes. And at that particular time, there was some really amazing work coming out from people like Jim Sinatra, who wrote an incredible seminal book called Listen to the People, Listen to the Land. Um, my professor at school, Paul Mehmet, who's you know an icon- iconic figure in, in the study of indigenous practices in the built environment. 
And I sort of shifted into looking at landscape architecture and, and trying to understand these multiple narratives that were occurring in the landscape at the same time. And, and one narrative was the, the narrative that was sort of the narrative of occupation and, and colonialism and, and the spaces that I was growing up in and the histories that I knew. And then there was this other underlying narrative that was cultural and about deep time and, and about indigenous landscapes and understandings of the country. And they were happening simultaneously. And most of the understandings sort of in that indigenous space that we were we were looking at sort of had these really strong relationships with sacredness and sacredness in the landscape. And I was really drawn to that specific idea. And so from that moment, I sort of left architecture, went more into landscape architecture. And that's how that exploration of sacred landscapes happened. And around that, I was sort of in Australia, really interested in this idea of sacred landscapes and, and trying to understand what makes a landscape so powerful and how does sacredness work in the landscape. And so to explore that, I started traveling as most Australians do. And I sort of, I really loved trekking and I began to do some of these really big trips overseas into some really remote locations, like going to Borneo to see wild orangutans and and sort of go and visit the Penang tribe that was in sort of the sacred heart of Borneo and doing pilgrimages to sacred mountains like Mount Kailash in Tibet, where I'd run into nomadic Tibetan pastoralists. And so for years, I kind of took myself on this journey of trying to understand what is sacredness in the landscape and how do I explore that and understand that? And how do I understand how cultures that are very different to my own culture, how do they actually live with their environments in different ways in those particular types of spaces? So incredible discoveries. And after over a decade of this research, which I'm pea green with envy about, your adventures <laughs> sound incredible. <laughs> you spent seven years researching indigenous nature-based technologies on different scales and in very different places. So how did your interest in, in that field develop and how did your understanding of it evolve during the research? I think I kind of I kind of consider it that I had this like informal education that I was taking myself on that was kind of like exploration of some of these obsessions um, that I had and, and these questions that I just needed to answer about sacredness and it was and those sort of interests and those journeys and those understandings did lead to more formal research projects and, and more proposals within the field. Um, one of those was um, designing the Tourism Management and Biocultural Conservation Plan for Bali's first UNESCO World Heritage Site. So at the same time I was taking myself on these journeys, it was leading to really some incredibly interesting projects. I was also teaching at Columbia and Harvard, and that was in the era of what we kind of call ecological urbanism, when there was an, a, a sort of a, a really strong focus on ecosystems and understanding of ecosystems theories. And I was working with some really incredible pe people like Pierre Belanger. And there was this really distinct focus on landscape infrastructure in the field. And then I had this really kind of quirky interest in conservation and sacred, sacred landscapes. And I for a long time, couldn't really figure out how they would go together. But 
I was teaching in these very formal environments and so with these more informal interests. And then I was asked to design a seminar on landscape eco-technology at Columbia. It was the first seminar that I ever taught. And I was teaching the standard stuff. I was teaching the technologies in the built environment that were written about in all the textbooks and, and what we knew and material technologies. And I was in Bali. I was speaking to these farmers and these scientists about this Subak rice terrace system, which is featured in low tech and it's a sacred landscape. And I kind of had this come to a moment where I realized that actually this is technology. Like I'm teaching this other technology, but this is technology as well. And why don't we talk about this in the field as technology? And why don't, why aren't we thinking about this in the same types of terms and understandings and ways that we're thinking about this in the built environment. And so I think from then on, I kind of had this almost like the puzzle pieces started to fit together. And I came back and I started teaching in that particular course, indigenous technologies and the students were absolutely fascinated. And most of the students that I was teaching, they were actually international students from all across the globe. And I'd say to them, okay, well, tell me about the technologies that come from the, the places that, that you grew up in. And inevitably, they all come back with houses. And I was like, no, 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 we're not looking at architecture. We're looking at landscape eco-technologies in the built environment. And then they would go on these incredible explorations and speak to communities. And, and that was kind of the, the seed, the initial idea for low-tech and actually... The original title of the book wasn't low tech, it was landscape architecture without landscape architects. So it was kind of a, a bit of a homage to Rodofsky. And you know, today I think that that the work that low tech is kind of discussing, I would couch it sort of in parallel to designers who are working with biomaterials, like Fernando Laposse, who's exploring traditional material cultures and you know, at the other end, maybe Scape Studio, who is designing soft systems for climate resilience. But with low tech, it kind of has the ability to bridge the gap um, between those two types of practices, between the scale and the types of systems thinking. And the research that you did in this field formed the basis of the book, Low Tech. What were your objectives for the book? I mean, I literally wrote the book that I wanted to read. I, I have wished somebody else had written the book. It would have saved me years and years. But yeah, as I said, I'd been sort of teaching in these schools with so many students that were from international backgrounds. And they'd come to the East Coast where I was teaching to sort of learn the most progressive and the most innovative practices in the field. And inevitably, I found that they were incredibly US Eurocentric ideas and, 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 and models that we were just discussing. And I wanted the students to understand that, you know, where they came from, there was really incredible sophisticated technologies and intelligences in the systems and the cultures um, from their own countries so that, you know, when they return, that they might come up with a fresh perspective on how to interact with those understandings and how to be designers in those landscapes rather than just recycling the ideas and the, of progress and, and the built environment you know, over in the East Coast of the USA, you know, fundamentally, I kind of had like three primary objectives in the writing. And the one was to tell 
like an alternative narrative to the story that we had all been sold about what technology is in the built environment and to expose what I think is like a really limited understanding of, of what that actually is. And, you know, I think sort of going back to how this all began, the other thing was to kind of like to highlight the different ways that humans have been building with nature to its benefit rather than its detriment, which I found so incredibly fascinating for, you know, the last 20 years and all the explorations and, and, and travels that I'd done that were just being completely ignored in the field or unrecognized or overlooked or, you know, even erased. And then I also wanted to discuss this thing called the Shadow Conservation Network, which goes back to this idea of sacred landscapes. And the Shadow Conservation Network is actually the network of sacred spaces all around the globe that is occupied by Indigenous peoples that really supports the global biodiversity. So it's not the formal network of conservation landscapes. It's this thing called the Shadow Network that sits behind all of that. And and to really kind of reconstruct the narrative about Indigenous peoples and their impact and the impact of, you know, their continued presence for thousands and thousands of years on the earth, which had been really horrifically destroyed in the last 400 years. So there was, you know, definitive engagement with the discipline, but there were much subliminal and, and larger um, messages uh, that I wanted to convey in the book as well. Well, and one of the many wonderful things about the book is it really does make you see the world differently and bring back childhood memories of the application of, of Indigenous technologies that, as you've said, were never defined yeah. as that at the time. And I think probably every individual would have the same references to make. But could you talk us through just a couple of the projects that you explored in Lotech so people can visualise um, what you're describing? Yeah, I think the first one to talk about is actually, it's on the front cover of the book, and it's one of the projects that you know, really excites people's imaginations about the potential of what a future world sort of based upon this type of thinking could be. And that's a living root bridges of the Wakasi people who live in northeastern India in an area called Meghalaya. And they live in this incredibly mountainous landscape in a forest and they experience the monsoon twice a year. And what they have and what they have done and the villages are sort of separated um, by remote distances. I've actually been there and you have to walk down about 8,000 stairs to get down to the, the villages and, and to these living root bridges. And the bridges are actually have been made, they think for maybe the last 1,000 years, there's 77 in existence at the moment. And the root bridges are um, made by growing the root systems of the ficus, the secondary root systems that hang down from the big branches, the ficus elastica tree, a fig tree, they weave this through a bamboo scaffolding over their river corridors so that in the periods of the monsoon, when the forest is just full of water that's rushing down through these gorges, they can still travel between the villages. It's, so it's a living bridge that is grown they last a couple of hundreds of years and and they're just an infrastructure that is alive and it's very, very intentional. So 
these trees are planted on either side of a river by a, a, a person from, and they're owned by the villages that this bridge connects. And then, you know, maybe three generations after, maybe the grandchild of the particular person or people that planted those trees are the people that actually get to walk across that bridge. So it's very intentionally thought of that these are infrastructures that are created for multiple generations ahead in time, knowing that they will never ever be used by the person who's initiating that infrastructure, its existence in that landscape, which I think is an also incredibly profound way of conceiving of creation of a transportation network within your community. A second example I think that is actually really incredible is the East Calcutta wetlands. And it's a wetland system that is found on the perimeter of the city of Calcutta, which is a city of about 14 million people in India. And the East Calcutta wetlands are this informal wastewater treatment system that actually takes in about the half of the wastewater that comes out of the city of, of Calcutta every single day. And it go this wastewater is taken from the Hooghly River and it is funneled through this fish pond uh, aquaculture system that was created about four generations ago. So now we're into the fourth generation of fish farmers that actually occupy and and work this particular landscape. And so it's treating the sewage that comes out of the city of Kolkata daily, about half the sewage, cleaning it before it's then released into the Bay of Bengal, saving the city millions of dollars worth in uh, what would be needed for a wastewater treatment system. But it's also doing that by aquaculture. So it's fish. It's a fish farm. And so that fish then goes back into feeding the city. On the perimeter of this landscape, there is uh, rice being grown and vegetables and fruit. And so in accompaniment to that, there's another sort of ecosystem of agriculture that's feeding off this aquaculture system, both with fertilizer and with irrigation water, really close to the, you know, to the actual city center that then goes back into sort of feeding the residents of the city. There's a estimated about 100,000 people have provided jobs with this particular wastewater treatment system. It saves the city transportation to sort of transport agriculture from the countryside back into the city. And it does all these amazing ecosystem services things like creates a haven for biodiversity. It's a carbon sequester. It's a nitrogen sequester. So it has all these incredible things. And if you think about that and how we approach that particular infrastructure, in cities like London or New York, we have a wastewater treatment system. It does one thing and it cleans the water. And it does that through electricity, burning of fossil fuels and with chemicals. So you have this alternative informal system that does all these other things and provides food and, and jobs and, and um, you know incredible advantages to the city while also doing the wastewater treatment for that city. And then a third system, I think, which people find incredibly fascinating is the Madan, who are culture, 6,000-year-old culture, who you spoke about in the introduction, that um, they live in the southern wetlands of Iraq, and they've occupied that space for you know, 6,000 years. And what they do is they create something called the Al-Talah, a floating islands and Madif houses, and there are these f 
floating islands and houses that are made out of one specific reed called the Kassab reed and they float in this aquatic environment. So these community live in this aquatic environment and over the last 50 years there's been a lot of changes to that particular community with displacement by Saddam Hussein draining the marshes and issues with uh, upstream damming of the Tigris Euphrates and and a lack of water coming in and increased salinity. So this it's not a pristine environment. It's not an environment that doesn't have its own set of problems and issues. And it's not an environment that's not impacted by progress and by extraction and and by any means it's you know it's not a perfect place at all but it's a place where they have really i think it really shows it's in a way that a community can live in an aquatic environment in an incredibly harmonious way and use and i think what's super interesting about this particular system is that they use the kasab reed for every single thing they eat it they make bread out of it they feed it to their buffalo the water buffalo they make islands that float out of the Kassab reed through this layering and fencing and system. And then they create these beautiful arched sort of cathedral-like houses on top of these islands, which they live on. And the, this particular reed is sort of bundled into columns. It's woven into floors and roofs. And then it's made into a twine, like the final kicker. They make it into a twine that they use to lash the building together because they don't use any metal or any fasteners. And what that does, it allows them to pick up the building, dismantle it, pick it up and move it within three days. So that's it's incredibly mobile and adaptable system as well that's made through just different types of performances of this particular read. And one performance which I didn't mention, which is the performance of flotation because of decomposition of that read, which I think is just like such a fantastic performance of a material that we never think about in architectural landscape architecture. Like, you know, let's use decay in a really imaginative way. So I think... Yeah, those are, those are three um, really good examples of, of some of the projects from Lotech. Well, they're such beautiful examples, not least because all of them involve radical but very unexpected and enlightened redefinitions of notions of time, authorship, economy, efficiency, and, and, and so on. Now, given that you were travelling to very remote places to do this research, what were the main challenges for you in terms of persuading the people to share their knowledge and experiences and also ensuring that you were interpreting them with the accuracy and sensitivity that you'd have wished to? Yeah. I mean, every experience that I had was different and and sometimes there was no barrier to access or to sharing of knowledge and and in fact there was you know especially for the case of the Madan um, I had worked on an engineer and you know a really important activist from the Madan community prior to writing the book and so I had sort of a very close connection with the community which I still have today I just wrote the foreword for a book that is he is publishing and so sometimes there is just there was you know a a very um, easy engagement and a, a huge willingness by the community and by experts within the community who I spoke 
with and engage with to share their story because they didn't have a platform to discuss their knowledge or their culture or the challenges they were had been and were experiencing at that particular time and then you know other times I think there was just more logistical challenges like language and distance and remoteness and time and and funding but I think more to the point of the question there's definitely um, there were challenges with with trust and establishing relationships of trust for this sharing of knowledge and going through and having discussions with people about why I was collecting this knowledge and and where it was going to be published and for what use and often you know an incredible initial distrust in that type of engagement based upon history and based upon perhaps past engagements or just you know terrible atrocities that happened or recent histories of colonialism where you know obviously why would there be any trust in an academic coming to write about your particular cultural and in some and in cases writing about things about mythology and some types of knowledge that perhaps weren't meant to be accessed by wider audiences and so that was also really important like trying to understand because when I when I was coming into when I was very green and coming into sort of these types of situations, I would want to publish uh, really incredible and fascinating conversations that I had. And then I would sort of be told, no, you can't talk about that. That was just a conversation and, and that's not meant to be shared. And then I, you know, as well, you know, getting accuracy from particular sources and permission from elders. And, you know, so in writing Lotech, I think that there was a feature of the book which became quite unique in terms of these series of interviews that I did with five different experts from the communities. And the interviews were always actually carried out with that person in their indigenous language. I had an interpreter. And that then that interview was interpreted back into English. And it was really important actually as well to publish that interview in that person's language first in the book um, so I think there are like six languages in the book and then publish it in English so that also like if that person was ever to, uh, to read that book or any from anybody from that community was to to pick up the book they could read someone speaking to them from their particular culture about their landscape and about their technology and about their innovation it wasn't my voice um, or my words being written down it was it was the authorship of other people um, that were involved. And then I think, you know, that journey of understanding best practice and and how to approach sensitive cultural material and how to write about it is always evolving. But right now we're doing we're writing the sequel. And so now there's a different approach being taken where every single chapter is actually being written with a co-author from the community. So that process of permissions and and fact checking and accuracy it happens innately in the process of the writing. Fascinating. I mean it's so important to consider all these issues and you are of course now 
also involved in another phase of, of your research when at a time when designers, architects and others are searching for new approaches to addressing the climate emergency, there clearly is potential for the indigenous technologies and design methodologies that you've been unearthing to provide solutions. Could you give us a couple of practical examples of how this might happen, how they could be applied on a very different scale in different places? I mean, I think um, when we talk about the application, we often go immediately to the to the one to one. But I think there's not only sort of the application of these types of technologies in a sort of on the ground manifestation. I think that we can sort of or I like to envision that there can be an application also at a sort of conceptual and narrative level. So and I want to kind of quickly sort of take you through that type of understanding that sort of I think a low tech initially is really about a parable about technology that we don't have to always look to the future that we can look to the past in the way that we understand how to create our built environments and that there's sometimes you know the other the other part of that is sort of what are the values of these types of technologies and the, these communities and understandings about working with planetary systems and belief systems that are composed of, of ecological narratives, of generational thinking, of sustainable use of resources, you know, of circularity that can work tangentially with ecosystems and, and that are based upon ecological systems thinking that we can learn from. And, and I know that there are organizations like the UN Resilience Frontiers organizations that are really focused on trying to understand that type of engagement for climate resilience from tr traditional ecological knowledge and from indigenous communities. And then I think that sort of there's this real focus in, in the climate change conversation at this moment in time on nature-based technologies, but the nature-based technologies narrative, I think, is still very Western and very limited. And so literally, you know, the contemporary literature that, that's coming out of, say, the World Bank or out of the COPs or you know, the United Nations, the different programs, they're really focused on sort of more like a global north understanding of nature-based technologies and you know, let's get to you know 50% renewables by 2025 and let's preserve our peatlands and grasslands and and I think that there's a way that we're missing that discussion about indigenous nature-based technologies that are the technologies that are featured in low-tech that has been acknowledged like the Paris Agreement they said we acknowledge the incredible value that indigenous peoples have towards our understanding of climate change but it hasn't been solidified and and it hasn't been really engaged even today in in a lot of the literature that's coming out so that's a way that I think that there can be this direct uh, engagement um, and then getting to like the more practical examples, I just wanted to sort of precursor that there are sort of larger ways of thinking as well. But, you know, I think there's two ways in terms of practical examples. There's the migration of technology. So one community who's experiencing new climate change impacts can literally migrate a technology from another community who's had those impacts or who lives in that type of ecosystem and, and share knowledge. And then there's the hybrid low-tech, high-tech where you know that comes sort of to our profession where in two ways like I think you know our profession working in the global south and bringing consultants and expertise to the global south often there's this kind of 
I think, inadvertent neo-colonial approach to how we're consulting and how we're talking about design for climate resilience occurring in those places. And I think that focusing on ideas based upon low tech, that there's an inherent DNA of ecosystem and culture in a space and, and in a community and their understanding of engagement with their ecosystems that needs to be acknowledged and drawn into the design process. And then there's the other obvious you know, example of how can hybrid, low-tech, high-tech technologies work in the global north, in cities of the global north? How could these systems have an impact on London or New York? Or I, Sometimes I think that thinking in that specific context with huge metropolitan cities is not the right context or ecological footprint that we should be engaging with this type of thinking but maybe second or third growth ring cities where there is sort of a landscape of transformation that these systems can actually begin to occupy and and recontextualize how we're thinking about cities um manifesting and so i mean i think one of the really great examples is the wastewater treatment system of nature-based technologies like the East Calcutta wetlands, like the Chinapas of Mexico City, like the Hujau uh, polder dike system of sort of mulberry trees and, and silkworms that create silk and textiles and, and aquaculture systems in China um, or other systems in, in Indonesia where there are these big polder dike systems um, which are floodable landscapes that treat wastewater, that these multi-use infrastructures that produce food, that sequester carbon, that prevent flooding, that create habitat and aquatic and for terrestrial and aquatic species. And they also they do this without the use of chemicals and pesticides and, and um, fertilizers and without the use of um, fossil fuels. And so they they're creating they're sort of fulfilling um a lot of the requirements of nbs the nature-based technologies that have come out of sort of the g20 summits that are being spoken about but uh they're doing this in, in like a very natural and and a very informal way and so i think that type of thinking is can be incredibly productive if we were to draw on those ideas for wastewater treatment for our cities. And another example which we're exploring with the new book um, is looking, well, this new book is actually focused on water technologies. And um, so we're looking at a lot of coastal aquaculture and mariculture technologies, which are like fish trapping systems that a lot of them aren't in use today because different ways of trapping fish are used with nets or um, so a lot of these technologies which are walls that are these intertidal big wall systems that are hundreds of meters of long that trap fish and they actually also act in ways to protect shorelines and they act as anti-erosion systems and they create habitat for marine life and and they they inadvertently kind of like act as storm revetment um, walls like there are ways I think that we can look at those types of infrastructures for perhaps coastal and island um, communities or the establishment of those types of infrastructures in our sort of coastal intertidal spaces 
that are really interesting. And I think the next step with that in terms of like thinking about high tech is like, is there a way that renewable energy systems can be incorporated in those types of construction systems for for creation of energy systems for island communities. And so I think that there's there's lots of different ways that I think that, that we could think of practical examples for those applications and somewhat specifically just like these technologies are site specific and respond to specific site conditions. The application of these technologies into other locations does become quite site specific and, and a requirement of the particular community or locale or a response to geography and topography and hydrology. But those that type of thinking at sort of a sort of a larger level then applied to specific site is going to bring about a whole different conception of what nature-based technologies are in the built environment. So incredible potential, but also a, a lot of challenges to be overcome. What do you think are the principal benefits from this approach, potentially, but also the biggest risks that will need to be resolved? Yeah, <laughs> um, that's a tough question. Um, you know, I think, and, and it may be somewhat rose-coloured glasses, I think the, there are really vast and insurmountably positive benefits. And I think the one, the, the biggest benefit, I think, is like, can you imagine if the global south, which is 75% of the Earth's population, was suddenly told that their technologies that they have created and could be supported and that there could be some really massive global investments going into assisting those technologies to protect their communities and to scale up those particular technologies in the global south um, in response to climate change. Whereas like now there's a completely different narrative. And we saw that narrative play out at the recent COP where, you know, there's finally been an agreement about um, uh, monetary reparations being paid from the global north to the global south. Climate destruction that has happened there, principally by the global north. But if we were to, to sort of change the narrative and say, well, actually, like you have incredibly sophisticated technologies that we can learn from and that the technologies are already existence in your location. So we don't have to come in there and do these huge infrastructural projects that cost billions of dollars that you know, eventually might fail to sort of save your particular type of communities in the ways that we do it in the global north. Like there's a there's a logic and an understanding and um, a particular, you know, set of theories and principles that we can apply that are completely already in your grasp. And we just need to scale that and we need to sort of uh, support those types of systems that are already in existence I mean, I think, you know, on the opposite spectrum, there are also a lot of risks. And, you know, some of those are sort of very obvious that the use of this knowledge in these systems could go in the same direction as like the pharmaceutical industry, which is incredibly exploitative. And sort of that sort of promotes that history of colonization and um, a very sort of asymmetrical power dynamics. And... Um, I think also that, you know, the, the correct values 
um, and understandings or attributions are not placed on the particular on that knowledge that is being used. And I think sort of uh, sort of zooming out in a very fundamental sort of way, there's just a clash between the worldviews based upon an idea of sort of living in symbiosis with nature and that you're collaborative with your community. And then as opposed to sort of an intense consumerism and capitalism and like how those two systems that play out in economics and governance and, and community and sort of a, so many ways they can collide and then they could cause a myriad of ongoing sort of problems. And, you know, and I'm sure, uh, if you've got a panel of other people, um, and especially indigenous um, leaders and experts, they could come up with, uh, you know, many, many other risks, but possibly many other benefits. But fundamentally, this, I think, in radical indigenism is a concept that I drew in to my argument. It already exists. Indigenous futurism is a humongous movement globally. Um, so indigenous renaissance is occurring. And so um, th these are already processes, de decolonization of, you know, the field of design. It's already at play. It's already these, all of these things are in motion. And so these benefits have already begun to occur. And, you know, some of the issues are playing out as the problems are playing out as well. And fundamentally, we just have to work through those problems and those risks to keep this evolution that this tie that's already occurring that will keep on happening and guide it um, and to a place that will really bring about an incredibly new sort of alignment with our understanding of how to work with our planetary systems. So Julia, how do you want your own work to develop in the future? So I think... Um, Low tech itself, um, I sort of see my work and low tech as working as two different things, perhaps, and or dependently or independently of one another. My hope is that sort of low tech begins to work independently and that a work, it sort of starts to change the field and decolonize the field of design and change the conversation about nature based systems and really demand the inclusion of indigenous knowledge in this climate change conversation. Um, for, I mean, for my work, personally, you know, I really just want to make sure that that I have the ability to have the greatest impact in sort of establishing and ensuring allyship with Indigenous communities around low-tech systems so that the profession can really work to the best practice um, when incorporating these ideas and theories. Um, I think a lot of what I have been involved in through my career as education as well so really making sure that um, that not just in the design field but actually beyond the design field more broadly that there is an impact on education systems and actually right now where I'm designing a um, public high school curriculum based upon low tech so that's kind of the next phase of that work and I think really, and finally, to have the greatest impact I can on designing for climate change and to really, really realign the ways we conceive of technology and progress to be more symbiotically aligned with, you know, how we think about human life on this earth into the next seven generations. Well, Julia, it's an incredible 
body of work. I loved Low Tech and I can't wait to read the next book. Thank you so much for sharing your achievements so far and your plans for the future with us. And a huge thank you to everyone for listening. You can find images of all the projects that we've discussed on our Instagram feed at design.emergency. And we look forward to welcoming you back very soon to the Design Emergency podcast, when we'll be talking to another remarkable force in design now and in the future. Goodbye.